like to introduce Dr. Karen Voorhees. Uh, she's a UU member and a wonderful writer. And in 1981, while working on her PhD in cultural history, Karen began meditating and discovered levels of truth and beauty beyond the intellectual. Karen brings her knowledge of big history and spirituality, 36 years as a meditator. I'm very impressed. We are thrilled to have Karen in this community joining with UUs in our commitment to human and spiritual growth. Mr. Cordell Sloan, Jr. is someone I've known for more than 30 years. He is the son of a civil rights minister, a technical futurist, a profound and spiritual thinker, and also a member of this church's board of trustees. And he's one of the kindest people I've ever married. <laughs> we are blessed to have these two UUCB visionaries discuss their take on the future and what it's likely to hold for us. And their talk is entitled, very intriguing, We Have Seen This Movie Before, Reasons for Optimism About the Future in Spite of Today's Headlines. Karen, I think you're going to start. Well, thank you so much, and I'm thrilled to be here, let's see, about four inches away from this speaker. Um, today we're experimenting with a different format. This is um, underprepared, unlike my last talk here. Um, I see this more as a jazz improv between me and Cordell for the next, um, what, 30, 35 minutes or so. And I'm going to take about 15 minutes to introduce a theme and develop it. And then Cordell's going to riff on it for another maybe 15 minutes, thereabouts. And we're going to keep our prepared, uh, what we stand up here and say to you, to about 30, 35 minutes. Because what we're really interested in is what sparks your interest. And so we want to hear your comments and questions. Um, what we're going to do, uh, let's see, Lonnie, where did you go to? Are you... There you are. Um, the way we're going to try to do this is as we're speaking, as I speak my 15-minute piece, which I haven't started yet. Uh, Charlie, you're timing this, right? <laughs> I haven't started yet. Um, if you want a clarification, you have a comment or an idea pops up or something you want to talk about, raise your hand, speak it out. We'll... Um, I'll repeat it so that um, Lonnie can write it down, right? Because I've, I've got a certain amount of material, a thought structure I'm creating for 15 minutes. We will come back to the comments and questions then after we finished my riff, his riff, your riff. And then we'll just see how we can develop this jazz theme among all of us. So this is, a, we're experimenting. You know, if we're a bit raw and rough, I'm sure you'll bear with us. And this is a very deep and serious theme, but the point is to play with it, have fun, while we're being profound, maybe, even, I hope. Um, is that all clear? Okay. So, okay, um, you can start the countdown, Charlie, if you're timing. Could you um, kind of make sure five-minute warning, ten-minute warning, 15-minute warning, and then I'll wrap up? Fifteen-minute warning, right <laughs> Okay, thank you. So, yeah, he's getting paid in love. Yeah. Right. It is? Now, I've figured I'm going to start by getting Old Testament on you. I have a vision. I have a vision. I really do. 
It's a vision of where we're going. Now, my vision comes from intuition and 36 years of meditating and all that good stuff, but it is grounded in my scholar's training as a historian. I have a sense of where we've come from in a lot of detail in some cases. And as a historian, as an academic, I can trace a trajectory. We've got a long track record here. I, I, Lonnie mentioned I have a PhD in cultural history, technically um, medieval art history, um, history of art and the Middle Ages from Cal. But I've always liked big pictures, and so, and I like, I've always liked thinking outside the box. I like looking at larger patterns. I mean, this is how people do things, right? We see patterns. Ever since we became Homo sapiens, one of the things we do that as far as we know, no, no other creature does, we see patterns, and then we make stories about those patterns that make sense. We seek meaning. We do this at many levels, but our understanding is all about pattern recognition, storytelling that seeks meaning. We've been doing this a long time, probably 200,000 years, certainly for about 50, because we look at um, cave art, burials. People are seeking meaning at whatever level of cognitive sophistication they are. When I started meditating, I started realizing, well, you know, there are more than three dimensions. There are levels of cognitively understanding things that are actually deeper and more profound than the intellect. Um, That's not my main topic today, but it's all over the last four or five decades of my life mushed together into a big picture that I'm going to try to share with you today in this 15 minutes. Now, at this point, could I have a volunteer? I have a stack um, at the back of the table in the back. I have a stack of uh, papers. We were going to project them. Thank you, Kathy. If you could hand them around. This is a chart I've come up with, and now I realize I'm going to need a copy, too. Um, While we're passing out these pieces of paper for you to look at and take home with you if it amuses you to do so, thank you, and one for Cordell. I'm here to tell you today why, given this background of a big picture that starts about 14 billion years ago, looking at this larger picture, I am very optimistic about our own future as humanity on this planet, with this planet, because we've seen this movie before many times. What we're in the middle of right now today, we look at the headlines, we look at our news cycles. It's very distressing. And we're right. This is big. This is really, really big. These upheavals we're in the middle of now, there's never been anything like it before on the planet. Our future is at stake, and we care. It's important to get our understanding right. When a patient comes to a doctor and I can say this, my husband's a doctor, so I like to say, trust me, I know what I'm talking about. My husband's a doctor. Well, I'm a different kind of doctor. You, when really important things are happening, when you've got symptoms that are really distressing, you don't want to just jump in and treat the symptoms, right? If you have a terrible headache like you've never had before and you go to your doctor and your doctor says, oh, let's give you an aspirin right now to help the headache, and then we'll figure out what's really going on. Well, if you've got a bleed in your brain, you don't want 
to take an aspirin, that could trigger a massive stroke. You want to diagnose. You don't want to just treat symptoms. You want to diagnose the underlying conditions at their deepest level. And there may be more than one thing going on. You want an accurate diagnosis, right? Then you can give a prognosis. Okay, here's what's really going on. Here, here is where this is likely to go. And I'm here to give you the prognosis. And maybe we can riff on then that the last of the four stages is a prescription. Now, here's what we can do about it. You're going to get a much better prescription if you really have an accurate diagnosis. You're not just running around treating symptoms. Okay. With that, my diagnosis is we have a 14 billion year track record very close in this universe starting with the big bang bang suddenly you have this matter energy and you need a science you need a science to study it physics we created this science of physics to study this well after a few billion then you start getting like suns and these suns are crunching hydrogen to make helium and then they're making heavier chemicals, and then we get exploding stars, and then we get a next generation of suns, and now we need a science of chemistry because we've got elements, you know. Then we get planets after some more billion years, and, you know, you need a new science to study that. You need geology and maybe meteorology <clears throat> if you've got an atmosphere. Every now and then the universe comes up with a new emergent, keyword emergent, a new emergent level of complexity, and you need a new science to study it. We've created these sciences, and then you get life, right? Now you need biochemistry. Chemistry is not enough. These are emergent properties that never existed before, and you could not have predicted from the previous levels. Well, then, now after a few billion years, you get multi-celled life. You get complex critters. You need a whole new level of biology to study this. Now you need paleontology. You've got evolution and evolution. And you notice that each one of these next emergent levels happens faster and faster. About 200 million years ago, um, we got Homo sapiens. And things kept speeding up, right? And here's what I th- one of the things I think is fascinating. Every one of these <clears throat> emergent levels happens about an order, very roughly, an order of magnitude faster than the previous one. So, now once we've got Homo sapiens, things really start speeding up, and this is where I've charted it. I've only charted this for Homo sapiens, and this is very much a work in progress. I threatened I was going to do this for the humanists, and I didn't. They were very patient to listen to me try to talk about this. Across the top here, this kind of pinkish band across the top tells you various levels of understanding of um, how we study the world, how the world, how the human world organizes itself. And I've started with, excuse me, the um, objective world on the left, and I've got the subjective world on the right. Piaget's developmental stages. Um, Starting from the bottom up, we've got the different ages of humanity. We've got the first era, the Paleolithic, across the bottom. We've got the technology in the Paleolithic. We've got the communications, economics in the Paleolithic, cultural, um, cognitive framework, impulse. People acted on their impulses, as far as we can know, by um, studying the most 
the least developed societies we know. Core values, survival in the Paleolithic. Religious worldview, unknown. You go one step up to the Mesolithic. That's the second band up from the bottom. Well, now we know that they had ritual and taboo because we've got cave art and we know societies at that level. Um, This is the era when animism, shamanism, is the religious expression of their worldview. In terms of childhood cognitive development, this this corresponds to the pre-operational symbolic level, for those of you who've heard of Piaget. If you look over on the left side of the chart at the more at the objective worldview, we know what their technology was. It was um, Stone Age. We know what, their, what kinds of communication was talking, smoke signals, and so on. Now, I'm not going to go in detail in this chart. If there's any interest in it, I'd be delighted to present it in more detail some some other venue, maybe through adult religious education. If you're interested, go, go bug Lonnie about that. The point I want to make here is, as you play with this, you go up the chart. There are emergent orders of structure at every level up you go. We go from the Old Stone Age into the Middle Stone Age. There are new emergent behaviors, ways of organizing society. They have very specific structures of values, a very specific type of religious expression. You go up to the Iron Age. Well, now you've got polytheism. Now you've got another level up of Piaget's cognitive development that's the dominant mode for, you know, people's, where more, the, the plurality of people in that society are at that level of cognitive development. You have specific types of communication technology. Every level up, you go from there into the Middle Ages. So you get to monotheism. You have the Axial Age. Now you've got monotheism. Now you've got levels of technology, wind power, water power, animal power. Every level up is a new level of complexity with emergent properties. You know, we are continuing this 14 billion year track record of evolution of greater structures of complexity with emergent complexity in physical structure, social structure, and cognitive capacity. Um, we are, all of us today in this room, firmly grounded in the modern era cognitively. I mean, if you're sitting here and you're a Unitarian or you're uh, used to coming up here, I will confidently predict that you are at least at the postmodern stage with a strong push up from there. Okay. Now, the reason I am harassing you with this in just 15 minutes is not because I'm going to go into detail into this chart. I want to draw your particular attention to the lavender bands across the page. These are the eras of transition, right? In physics, when we go from one stable state to another stable state, we go through a period of extreme volatility called a phase change. Things get very volatile. Then there emerges a new, more or less stable state that is probably very different from the one before. But it's a new stable. These are like plateaus. Then as um, internal contradictions build up, you get a period of very great volatility, and you emerge out of that into the next, whatever comes next. In biology, this is called punctuated equilibrium. Right of evolution, we are in one of the punctuation points of evolution. We are in a major phase change. We are in a period of extreme volatility. 
We're not kidding ourselves. We, I mean, this, this really is extreme. We've seen this movie before. Many times. We've seen this movie before. In human history, we've seen it before six times. We have a track record, folks, of going into periods of extreme volatility and coming out of them at a level of higher complexity. Now, it can be really horrible during those periods of volatility. In human history, many of them were dark ages. I mean, really dark ages, in which really bad things happened, and there were major regressions. As you go back farther in history, the periods of transition, the, the periods of stability are longer, the periods of transition are longer. As you come forward in history, the periods of stability are shorter, but the periods of transition are shorter. The last major the last period of major transition, the way I parse history, was the change from modern to postmodern. That was World War I, the 30s, the Great Depression, and World War II. We emerged in the postmodern world. You know, the Bretton Woods Accord, you know, the hippies, the, the beatniks, the hippies, all sorts of, I mean, the, the new world order that many people in our population are still resisting. You know, 30% of our population is still resisting that. We're already in the next one, folks. Those of, most of us here in this room remember the last transition. We came of, uh, if, if you remember the 50s and the 60s, you lived through the last major phase transition in human cultural history, the passage from where um, the leading edge was modern to the time where the leading edge was postmodern. We're leaving that behind already. This is the first time we're in one human lifetime we have experienced two major phase changes. Now, I pr confidently predict, based on this 14 billion year track record, that's a very large data spread, right? We are, at some point, probably pretty soon, going to emerge in that next level up. Evolution seems to be, in some way, baked into the universe. I mean, we've got a long track record here, folks. Are we arrogant enough to say that evolution stops with us? Oh no, it's all going to hell from here. Every generation has said that. I'm saying this as a historian. I say with confidence. Every generation has said, oh no, oh no, it's all downhill from here. Well, how did we get here? It's taken us 14 billion years to get here. I confidently predict we will emerge within the lifetime of almost everybody here. We will start to see at least the beginning of that next order. And I see where I get excited and where Cordell and I visit each other is we see, we are starting to see the outlines of the, of the next order. Um, so the passage could get worse. It could get a lot worse before it gets better. And that's where our mission comes in. Everybody here has some passion for making the world a better place. Let's get our diagnosis right. Let's get our act together. It is time, folks, to become what we want to see in the world for real. Not, it's not just a good idea. It is what the times call us to do. Now, I had this whole kind of... Um, very detailed idea of where things are likely to go from here. I came wandering up the hill here a year and a half ago in the wake of the 2016 election because, of, oh, you use, they're good at social action. I, I need to find, they'll, they'll, they'll have some good wheels I can put my shoulder to because I've got to be part of this. This was the church of my childhood. Um, my brother and I grew up in Livermore. Um, going to the Unitarian Church, but when I went off to college, I wandered off to other things. Well, when I came back up here a year and a half ago looking for social action, I found this wonderful community, 
said, okay, these are my peeps now, all right. And I jumped in, and I've been having a wonderful time. And then, last spring, Cordell Sloan preached a sermon. I think it was a sermon. You gave, I think you gave the sermon. It was a call to action. I'm sitting there. This man has my vision. To the detail, one detail after another, bing, bing. He's got the same vision I do of where this is going. It's a very bright vision if once we get through our very dark times, and they will get dark worse before they get better. But there, we, there's a very bright light at the end of this tunnel, and he sees the same practicalities as I do. So I waited until everybody else had gone through the reception line. And then I went up, and I started fizzing, and he fizzed back, and we kind of burbled excitedly for about 20 minutes. And we've gotten together again a few times and burbled excitedly, as Lonnie can attest. And um, now I'm going to turn this over to Cordell. I have no idea what he's, how he's going to riff on this next, and I am eager to hear. Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see. <laughs> Love you too. That's what you said. I um. I had one question for you, uh, Karen, and I chose not to interject it uh, because the answer may not be straightforward. But I but I'm going to rather than pose this question, maybe reflect on uh, a finding that we have in in uh, biology when we evolve. Those structures that we are evolving from. Let's, let me pick an example. The reptilian brain, you know, we went through a phase where we were swamp creatures. I, I know, I know, it's an ugly past, but we were swamp creatures. And we evolved a system to, to respond to the situation that we lived in. And, and, and I would say when we use the term reptilian brain, it was largely about moving away from danger and toward uh, food and other things. And it's, it's not driven by logic as we understand logic in the human sense. But my point is that as we evolved and we're no longer reptiles, those structures still remain in our system. And that's true of many of the phases we've gone through. We still have residual structures, and they're not vestigial and not doing something. They are part of what we do today. So even though I'm not a reptile, I'm having some reptilian behaviors, particularly when I'm emoting in particular ways. And so while we talk about evolution and while we talk about what's coming next, Sometimes it sounds like we're emptying the pail and filling it with something completely different. And what we're doing is incorporating what still works with new solutions. And we meld it together in an increasingly complex organism. But my point is, a lot of what we did in those phases that Karen has talked about still play. And they play in positive and negative ways. And oftentimes what we're trying to do as we're in a particular point in time is making sure that what we kept from the past does not impede the benefits of the new things that we're evolving. So we learn to manage emotion. It plays an important role and we can't live without it and be human. However, we still have to go, but how do I manage, you know, that fight flight thing and how can I 
not reside as a norm in my stress mode, in my fight-flight mode? How do we manage? So we're always learning as we change to live in the new context that we find ourselves to be. So, so while we have a picture of development, increasing complexity, increasing capacity and capability, it's facilitated because it's built on a lot of well-tested parts from previous phases of our development. So one of the things that um, I wanted to stress as a strategy going forward, not as a strategy, but as as an essential behavioral skill, is those behaviors that derive from meditating. And when we think about the reptilian brain and how it can be dysfunctional, one of our means to manage that is by learning how to have some influence on our emotional states. And meditation is a practice that gives us opportunities to repeatedly grapple with those reins and focus our attention where we choose and condition our responses in the way that we choose. And to Karen's point about the turbulence of the transitional phases, when we go through the rapids, right? So we're on a nice, quiet pond. We're going downstream to the big lake. But there is a rapid between. How do we get through that and come out on the other side well and intact and ready to appreciate the new, perhaps, quiescence or at least stable state that we come to? So we are in a time where the skills to get through the transition will involve that inner management component. We won't be able to execute our strategies. We won't be able to bring others along who are not seeing the picture that we're seeing. We won't even be able to interact with them and integrate unless we have mastered a certain type of balance. And we've been studying that, some of us, for thousands of years um, in places like Nepal and Tibet. And we, we identify the East as the place where we work on our inner technologies. And we identify the West as the place we work on our external technologies. But as we become globalized, we have to meld and merge these technologies because we will succeed to the extent that we integrate all of our um, types of genius. So I just wanted to, that was my response to the fact that while we're talking about this transitional movement, we're not discarding everything. We're not transcending everything. We're bringing along very uh, much of what this experience has given us as solutions to various types of problems. So, all right, now I um, I like the story metaphor. Karen says we've seen this story before, and and so I say, well, if we were writing the story, what would be called this story? What would there be a good name for this part of our story? So I, I kind of threw down a couple real quick. I said, let's see. What? Oh, first of all, in terms of stories. You know, we are, we are conditioned that at the end of the story, we say, the end. Hmm. You know, for some reason I heard that in an ominous way. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, this is not the end. So let's t- 
take that part off the story. So we're not going to say, as we resolve what we're going to do, it's not going to be an ending story. So just throw out that part about the end. We're asking ourselves, how do we put off the end and keep a really engaging story? You know, how do we make our story one that we don't want the story to end? So that's what we're, we're talking about. So one of my titles, I, one of my titles was Viral Wisdom. Viral wisdom. Now, I don't know if anybody would buy the book or watch the movie <laughs> with that title, but we are a community, and in our community, we are practicing taking a concept or skill, an epiphany, an aha, and moving it from person to person. We are a teaching community. We teach ourselves. Our covenant is one of those examples of us going, what a great idea. And then we decide to hold together a certain way of being with each other. Now, the word viral is added is because if we are to survive, what we learn in our community is not just for us. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we package our best findings, our best learnings in such a way that there is a dynamic that pushes it through similar Organisms, other people. How do we build this in such a way that it moves? And when I use the term virality, it, it, it referenced the word meme. Before the kids took over the word meme, a meme was an idea that passed from mind to mind to mind. And so, 1962, Chubby Checker did the twist. Next thing you know, from New York to L.A., and in between, everybody's doing the twist. That transmission from person to person is called a meme. And we are memetic people, species. But it also suggests that one of the ways that we address our togetherness is knowing that we do create memes and then taking care and pains to create positive memes. Memes that do good. Now, war is a bad meme. It's the stupidest thing humanity does. Even when we win, we've lost, no matter what anybody tells you. We've squandered resources, caused interminable and unimaginable suffering, and oftentimes negotiate back to where we essentially were in the beginning. We don't necessarily solve problems, but we still get caught up. Caught up. In certain thoughts. And so our, our brains are meme sensitive. Okay. But that also suggests strategies because to the extent that those of us who understand communication, understand story, can do amazing things with memes. Winston Churchill was a genius of memes and saved Britain and perhaps the world by being skillful at what he put on the ocean surface that floated from place to place. As an example, Lincoln, genius of memes. Songwriters, poets, Martin Luther King. King. So so it's something that's a part of us, and, and I suggest that as we go forward, one of the things we should be crafting are memes that we craft intentionally to facilitate our transition through this turbulent period, and in fact, to facilitate the integration of our best ideas and our best learnings and our best strategies.
So, story. Uh, so viral wisdom was one. Uh, the other one I like, invitation to the pantheon. So you look at the word pantheon and they talk about So just, just call it the round table of the gods, you know. So we're being invited to the pantheon. We have evolved to the point, or let me say our capacities have risen to the point where we can determine the, whether life continues or not. I, I, I mean, used to be that was a, that was a God, God job. You know, it was above our pay grade to stop or continue life on the planet. We didn't, but now we're in that, we should take that seat at the table and ask ourselves, if I were God, how would I push this process? And then it becomes a question of what is our essential nature because it is going to be our nature that we express or attempt to. And then contextualizing this, I believe that the church is the context among our organizations that holds the values that, that have to do with sustainability. Businesses, the profit motive, are not asking about the long-term sustainability of humanity and the quality of our lives, they're asking about their bottom line and, and, and the um, satisfaction of their stockholders, which may be 10 people. Let alone, and what about the other 7 billion? Their concerns are not about our collective welfare. So we, but, but I like the title, uh, Invitation to the Pantheon. Um, and, and in Perrin, I would go, outing, outing the new God. You know, we're outing this new God, but, but, but we have to own that. We have to recognize that we have come to a place of enormous consequence. Our every move, our every action, our decisions now have consequence that was never at this scale before. However, we're not bringing out judgment and perspective along to match our effects. So we have, you know, a continent of plastic in the ocean with creatures that we rely on to survive under such stress that we can break the entire system of life on this planet because we're not willing to ask the deep questions and to proceed with a certain carefulness and care beyond ourselves about what we're doing. So, just, just a point. Um, I'm not sure why I wrote Don't Hold Your Breath. <laughs> but, 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 when I, but, but I know it had something to do with meditating and in fact, one of the central activities of the practice of meditation is to, the simple beginning is to attend to one's breath. The practice will give you the opportunity to become very skillful at managing your attention, which is necessary. We're not going to go for it without being masters of our attention. Number two, when one does place one's breath low in the belly, deliberately, we begin to drag ourselves from fight-flight mode into peacetime mode in our bodies. Our bodies really realize that when we breathe that way, we're in a good place and we're safe in it, and things are okay. We are artificially triggered in our society to be fighting or fleeing. Look at the movies. Look at the news. 
We choose to present information that is always triggering us to be in a state of stress. And we have to own responsibility for our inner peace, learn how to create it, and sustain it. We're not being threatened by aliens and and zombies and black people. No, we're not. But we keep telling ourselves these stories and they are active. They help, they affect our biology. So, so maybe that's why I said don't hold your breath. <clears throat> Another, there's an operational piece of God in you. There's an operational piece of God in you. When you look in the mirror, you're seeing a piece of God. Okay. Uh, let's see. What did I, staging, oh, oh, we are experiencing an, an embarrassment of knowledge. I like the phrase embarrassment of riches. Well, we have an embarrassment of knowledge. But what we're learning to do is to translate that knowledge into the things we desire. So, um, the idea that I'm referencing there is that we have blessed ourselves, if you use my God language, we have blessed ourselves with the internet. Spoken like a true tech. Now, what does that mean? We can inform, educate, teach people, present good stories, speculate at a level we never have before. It is our approach to the collective brain. And we're getting better at it. Right now, we're entertaining ourselves with it and using it for commercial purposes, but it's going to get deeper. And we will actually have an intelligence at a global scale that will let us understand where we're hurting as a planet. And let us all understand what we're doing together because we're not understanding what we're doing. We're not understanding it. If we can have a debate about whether science is real... And then get on a 747 and fly somewhere, we are really having an internal inconsistency of some kind. Because the science is what you're betting your life on, but then there's some other reason why you decide, okay, now science is not good over here, but it definitely works over here. We are not consistent, but we're going to get better at that. We're going to get better at that. So, um, do I need to do any more titles? I, I, I'm going to, because that wasn't the point, but it's useful to, you know. Oh, one more. Unrequited genius. We have genius that's not satisfied yet because we're not doing our best yet with our best thinking. We are stuck. If every day we watch the news, eat dinner, go to bed, get up, go do something, talk to the grandkids, go do the job. And if each day we are not acting like there's something we should be doing that day to save ourselves, we're disconnected from the state that we're in. And not only are we not using our brains, we're using our fear. We're being afraid as opposed to being industrious. And so we've got this unrequited genius. But some of us, are not backing off the fact that if we sit down and huddle our best minds, we can come through this. And we must. We must. But anyway, I'm going to stop with titles now. So, uh, but they were fun to play with. I have four things I want to talk about. 
our collective mental health. Tools and buddies. Tools and buddies, that's where we come in. Tools and buddies, the church. Um, I created an acronym because I'm still vulnerable to acronyms. This one's called EPOC, E-P-O-C, EPOC. Maybe that's a better way to pronounce it. And this is, comes from the facilitating development of empowerment, participation, organizing, and collaborating. We do those things on a global scale. We are that God. Right? So the EPOC platform is the tech term that I'm using for this basis that we use to coalesce everyone effectively. For one, people power, and for global governance. Right now, we don't have global governance. Anybody want to argue with me about that? I dare you. I dare you. I don't. I'm Clint Eastwood. Because we have put the decision-making capabilities in the hands of very few people who never grew up wanting to serve the world, never grew up thinking about how to make this a wonderful, how to return to the garden, or how to live the best way for all of us. That's not what these leaders are thinking. They're thinking competitively. They're thinking, I want to win. And with our powers, these contests to win will destroy us all. We need to go into the mode of we. We humanity can live well. If we stop dividing and playing these these lethal games that we play. So... People power is what the technology is going to allow us to do where each of us can wade in and express our will for the world. And I'm betting that in the bell-shaped curve, that out here on the edges are very, very few people who want to do the crazy things. And here in the center are people who want to live well. They want to love. They want to raise children. They want to have music and art and and feel like the world is a good place and life is worth it. If we let those people participate in governance, we're there. And the crazies will just have to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll treat them. We'll embrace them and help them get better. <laughs> I tell myself that because that really ultimately, if if I condemn them, I'm still being pathological in my thinking. We do have to think differently. And we have to think lovingly. Love is not an optional thing. It's not roses and chocolates. Love is the power that binds us together. It is the principle underneath our success as a species, and it's the principle underneath our ability to create what we're creating. Because love, to me, is the the force that takes two separate things and has them come together in a synergy. In a relationship, two people come together, that synergy is has more in it than either, if you do the math, you get two and two is equal to four. Love is not mathematics. Two plus two, I'm sorry, one plus one, just some of us are still, <laughs> I'm going to keep it one plus one because, you know, 
<laughs> but, anyway, but but it's not math. So so this is necessary. But we're we're going to reframe the way we think about the word love. So uh, finally, we our conversation is the beginning of discovering and implementing a new narrative and a new mode of being. I'm going to pick on one of my. I'm not going to pick on. But those of you in the entertainment business who understand storytelling, we need you to help us make impactful stories. To teach those of us who don't know how to do that, how to do that. We as a group will not open the door to the relationships until we get the story suggesting that. The stories have got to light the way forward. So that we look at it and go, I really want to go there. And we may not think consciously, but we can be biased by a good story. We can be biased and then realize later on that it affected our decisions and choices. We're always programming ourselves. In everything we say and do, we are programming ourselves and probably someone else who's watching us. So it matters, the stories we tell. And we must learn to craft them. So back to our unrequited genius, there are psychologists who study now, this hasn't always been the case because we had theoreticians, but it wasn't true science because we, we didn't have a concrete understanding of the dynamics of our emotional behavior. But now we have technologies, and I know that word is kind of cold, but we made that. We made technologies in the same way that we made ovens that make great bread. We make technology, does, I mean, you know, we can see technology doing warming, hearth-related things that we love. Well, so let's keep attributing that to the things that we create. But we have the capacity now to observe a person with pathology, or person in treatment, or person trying to enhance their capacity and understand how it works. And based on our understanding, we can create therapies, Interventions and even tools that let us get better from pathology or get better, meaning smarter, more capable of processing the complexity that we're facing. We now have science of mind in the last decade, I would say, that we haven't had in our history. And that's one of those chaos-inducing but opportunity-inducing emergencies. So, so even though we know, and you hear people say it all the time, we haven't changed, even though we can fly planes and, and destroy the planet and go to the moon, but we haven't changed in our heart yet. And it's said as though it's not a place where we cannot. I'm suggesting that maybe it's later in our sequence than we might have hoped, but it's no less available to our creativity and choice and intention than in the other domain. No less. So we have to take up the task of saying, how do we do better this inner experience? How do we do it better? And we will provide answers. We will produce answers. And one of the challenges that Lonnie and I offered in our talk in May was that in this context, one of our ought to do's, our should do's, is to curate this research, translate it, 
and make it available. Learn to teach it. Learn to walk that walk. And then teach that to other churches and other organizations. And begin, and take the responsibility to do that. Not think small. To think as big as we can. Because it's our thinking. We can decide whether to be small or not. Why would we choose small? Well, I guarantee you that while we cover our eyes, Rome is burning. So safety is when we take our resources and apply them intelligently. I probably have gone past 15 minutes. I might be leaning toward perhaps 20 so. Questions, remarks, comments. I hope that this is interactive. Because my thought is I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to ring the bell. Ray, I see your hand. Then you. I think, boo-boo. Yes, I hear you. Working. I think that you're leaving out an important factor, and that is the factor of energy. In the 19th century, we had windmills. Uh, we had water wheels. We had sailing ships. We had horses. We had all kinds of sources of power that were renewable. Yes. And then the internal combustion engine appeared on the scene. And even though we had actual all-electric cars out on the highway running, we switched to a resource that we already knew was not renewable. There is only so much oil. And we're scraping the bottom of the barrel today. There is only so much pitch blend out of which you can make atomic effect. So we, we had a wrong turn in the 19th century when we could have had a renewable society. It was in our hands already, but we turned away from it. And now we have a technological problem that the energy sources that we have chosen that are not renewable are also lethal. It's now possible to end all life on this planet by the wrong use of energy. Thank you, Mr. Science. Ray, uh, thank you for your comment, first. Second, in half an hour, there is no way we can cover all, the, all of the issues that we face. So it's not an omission and it's not neglected. So, so but, but thank you. And I would also add that if one asks the question, why did we choose that? I think the answer to that question comes out of our emotional behaviors. And, and I'll also add that even if we had made the right choice energy-wise, it doesn't take off the table our need to become sane human beings. As a norm. But thank you. I, we had a question here. If it's okay, I... Okay, yeah, please. Okay. First of all, I really appreciate how you and Lonnie walk the talk. How you live your philosophy. 
And Thank you. Um, I also very much appreciate this carefully worked out structure here. And um, I'm old enough to know of a good many crises that we have survived, which uh, gives me some optimism. The one thing that's different, that's not on your chart, though, that we've never faced before, is a possibility, or the real question, of whether this planet is going to remain habitable because of our actions. And I really find it hard to be really, I'd love to be optimistic and say, yes, there will be a change of consciousness, a greater sanity, but I wonder where that comes in for you. Sure. Thank you. Yes. Um, I, as a big historian, um, the planet Earth has been far, far, far hotter than it is now in the past several times for as much as 100 million years, hotter than it is going to get with global warming. Um, to me, the crisis for us is not whether it's the planet is warming. The pl- climate has always been on this kind of roller coaster. We've had ice ages. There was one period when, apparently, the theory is there was one period when the, the whole planet was an ice ball. Um, and biological life somehow survived that as it was still just single-celled critters that survived under the ocean for a, for a few tens of millions of years, I think. We have had periods of heat and concentrations of CO2 and other greenhouse gases far greater than we're going to get in centuries, even at this trajectory. Life was never more abundant on Earth than it was during those periods. Those were the great swamps. Um, Those were where all those deposits of um, fossil fuels were laid down. The question is not how warm the planet's going to get. Life thrives. I mean, life is incredibly adjustable. The question is how fast the temperatures will climb, what havoc that will wreak on the systems we depend upon now. Species will go extinct, new species will evolve. They have done that on this planet for billions of years under systems of terrific stress, like major meteor strikes that provoked um, nuclear winter for a million years. 90% of species went extinct at the Permian extinction some like 300 million years ago. I mean, and then suddenly there's this vast burgeoning of new forms of life. It goosed evolution in the long run. These periods of major upheaval in the long run goose evolution because under extreme stress, which is what drives evolution, extreme stress drives the evolution of new forms. 90% of what's living goes extinct, but the forms that survive, by God, they're adaptable to the new form. We don't want that for us, right? No, we we don't want collapse of major systems. We don't want existing species to go extinct. Life will survive on the planet. It survived far worse things than we can throw at it. What we don't want is major systems disruption. We're already seeing the distress from climate change, right? We're already seeing millions of people fleeing uh, climate change, flooding. It's destabilizing Europe. We will survive this, I mean, some form of us and some form of life will survive this crisis at that new stage. Our job, as you expressed, is to mitigate the damage. Let's slow this down so that, no, we don't have millions and millions of climate refugees crashing whole systems that we all depend on. 
oh, we don't want to do it the way we did before. And I want to now riff on something Cordell said, which is that we are the driving edge of evolution now, homo sapiens, whether we like it or not. We said in our previous conversation, um, it used to be evolution was something that happened to us. Homo sapiens drives it now, us. I mean, look at what we're doing with, with DNA. I mean, evolution in the future is what we do on this planet, whether we like it or not. And now I'm going to quote, I'm going to close by quoting Stuart Brand, who brought us the Whole Earth Catalog back in the 70s. Back when he introduced the Whole Earth Catalog, he said, we are as gods. Um, we might as well get good of it. Nowadays, and I recommend his latest book, by the way, um, Whole Earth Discipline, highly recommended. We are gods. We better get good at it, which is your message. I have have one remark, and then I think Kathy, and then we'll... Yeah, all right. But just just one quick remark, and and then just I think I want to put it in the context of these questions. Um, I was reading a book recommended by Karen uh, by Terry Patton. And he's worked with Ken Wilber, and it is one of our one of the sources we will rely on when we construct our own school inside our church. Great resources. He spent his life compiling techniques and tools that work. He referred to he introduced the idea of a tip, tipping point, at least in the book. I'm not sure where the idea originated, but the tipping point idea in society is that when we have up when we approach 10% of people holding a certain view, a new view, that's sufficient for the society then to be influenced by that to the extent that that 10% leads the society to then embrace that way of thinking. We sometimes think about majorities. We think about 50%. We think about this dominating Number, But it seems that the research suggests that when you have 10% of the members of the society holding this idea, that's sufficient to introduce it to, to, in a sense, implement that new thinking in the society. I'll add one other fact. I saw some research that suggested that about 20% of our, mem- of our population attend organized religion. 20%. So within... Our 20%, we could probably get 10% if we make a concerted campaign to say, listen, don't just go to church and then walk out the same. Go to church and walk out better. And then take that with you. And let's, it suggests to me where the fertility is for the kind of change that is not simply changing a technology, changing a fuel, but getting to the driver. And the driver of this whole thing is the who that we are. It's not our options, it's the way we've learned to be. And we, all of us are still sitting here reflecting the traumas of our childhood and not the fact that we could have grown through them, beyond them, into fully mature, healthy human beings. Who is next? Yeah, so I'm basically echoing what you've just said wholeheartedly in terms of the 10%. Um, Are you able to hear me through this? Uh, So if you look at the Ted Cruz Beto race, 
it looks like Cruz is actually in trouble because why? We are talking to each other with the smartphones. There is social media. That is the evolution that is happening that Karen is talking about. And it's just a matter of paying attention. You hear stories such as Black Twitter where a girl got fined for selling water because she's raising money to go to Disneyland. But Black Twitter got wind of it and somebody sent her four tickets for her whole family. You know, Fukushima um, disaster, same thing happened. They didn't wait for the government. The nuclear scientists and engineers just started talking to each other and started coming up with solutions. Um, same with even monsters like Joseph Comey, who was this warlord in Africa that was enslaving kids by forcing them to shoot their parents. A bunch of guys, such as my classmate, who was a former Marine, um, they're from Taipei, flew in from New York, flew in from London. He's on the run now. You know, so those are the kinds of things that are happening. And it's not even 10%. It's enough people paying attention that decide they don't want to wait around. They want to actually do something. So this is the evolution. It is happening. It's not something that we are waiting for. It is actually happening. L.A. fires, they were pay paying attention to the tweets. They weren't waiting for the news stories. It's just those kinds of things. Um, I, I really liked what you said about having the people power global governments because I think the majority of the world is now atheism 2.0. Yes, most of us don't believe there's actually a God, but we still have our human fears, longings, anxieties, doubts, and dilemmas. So what now? You know, We need to get those history, literature, art, and philosophy professors out from the ivory towers and be accessible to us because the human condition hasn't changed. Maybe we were hoping culture would do that, but we also allow people like Trump to become president. So that's just my comment. My question to you is, well, Occupy Wall Street fell apart because there wasn't enough of this conversation and organization. So my question to you is, how can we be more organized for the next round? Wow, yeah. I would like to add to this chart that, I mean, as we go up the cognitive levels, of the, that, that's up the right side of the chart, these are, this is the inner world, the subjective world. There's a higher level of cognitive sophistication at every level up, and that leading edge that Cordell was just referring to, if 10% of a population is at the next level up, that's enough to shape the entire culture, because one of the features of this chart is not just that the next level up happens in order of magnitude faster than the one before. Every level of cognitive sophistication is ten times more powerful in dealing with the world because of the kinds of stories we can tell ourselves. E equals MC, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. That's a much more powerful story than lightning is because Jupiter is throwing a thunderbolt. Right? Every level up Individually and collectively, every level up is ten times more powerful a way of dealing with each other and the world around us. And as we have the capacity through the Internet and our devices, I have mine up here somewhere, we knowledge and power is more distributed, actually, at every level up. The capacity to organize, to spread best ideas, to find each other, to identify best practices, improve them quickly and spread them widely, that becomes more powerful, which is why the leading edge, even though it may be only 10% of the population, has the power to shape an entire culture. And this is where the stories that we tell ourselves become very important. Um, how we use our technology, you know, the 
objective world is on the left side of my scale here the inner world the subjective on the right how they meld together well the advance of our technologies is forcing us to get our acts together individually we need to get better fast and this is why my my fallback line is it's time to become what we want to see in the world become it ourselves not just say it's a good idea we need to do it for real and we can and it can be joyful i mean this is wonderful so there's so much that's wonderful i mean when i start thinking about where this is going to go once we're past the wobbles and once we solve the really dire problems there are some wonderful things ahead of us so this is joyful i mean it's urgent and it's like world war 2 i mean we need to sign up and we 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 all need to put our shoulders to this wheel but what's ahead of us if we don't just either fall asleep or run around screaming if we just address ourselves get serious i'll close with what they say in zen meditation meditate as if your hair is on fire what they mean is don't just say oh i'll get around to it in a half an hour i want to finish this chapter on the other hand don't run around going ah what you do you get very focused you go straight to the kitchen sink and stick your head under it and turn on the faucet you don't divert to something else you don't run around go what will i do what will i do you figure out what to do you go do it with that focus and the urgency of what we're facing today gives us that focus but where we're going with this if we don't blow it too badly can be really glorious okay okay do it. <laughs> i think we auctioned the mic i'm molly i'm i'm a visitor here today uh, i just am troubled by the uh, eurocentric version of history and probably asian centric um indigenous people are not primitive they had an enormous amount of wisdom and uh, that inner mm-hmm. stuff you're talking about that was obliterated by uh, the invasion of the new world by the in colonial society and the enslavement of africans mm-hmm. there was a huge amount of very advanced thinking and this is not reflected in your chart so i don't know how you can incorporate you. it in there but it needs to be there i will try to in the future you're right and i thank you and i will try to do thank that thank you thank you well, i i i want to put it on discordant view Um, first place look at the Roman Empire when the Roman em- don't think that knowledge is cumulative when the Roman Empire collapsed you didn't have clean water or sewage for a thousand years they didn't have central heat in Europe for a thousand years it's fine to talk oh yes the amoebas make we have pollinate the earth but we have to think through both in terms of our lives because that's how we have to live and where things are going but we can't assume that knowledge is cumulative because just look at what happened after the Roman Empire another problem is that it's the short term versus the long term right now if you read the book uh hillbilly elegy you see the problems and it is a very severe problem and that's what Trump fed into and we have right now a recent poll showing a lot of that election was resentment and resentment we saw in the 30s under hitler Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's fine to say, oh yeah, we'll come out of this in 100 years if we verge there's 10% that will go back to the politics of resentment. And we've seen that can take over 
very civilized societies mm -hmm. and result in an incredible chaos to society. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to stop and say it's not all cumulative. Society can fall apart, and it takes a long time to pick up the pieces. Okay? And we can say even in our, not my lifetime, but very close to my lifetime, we saw societies that seemed very advanced and liberal verge into the politics of resentment. Yes. And there's 10% of those people out there today in this mm -hmm. country. Yes. And they have a disproportionate influence due to the way that this country's electoral systems work. So I don't think we should think it's all, oh, well, just think a little bit about it. It's going to be easy. It's going to be very hard. There's 10% that are very negative, and we've seen the consequences. Thank you. Very briefly, um, we are not naive and believe somehow <clears throat> we're not happy-go-lucky about this. In fact, my activities are essentially reflecting the fact that I believe we should be doing things now with great urgency. Now. And and. As I think about when I phrase it as the inner game, we need to get better at that. It has ex exactly to do with the politics of resentment. Resentment is an emotional experience. And if people are having difficulties, they can either behave with great resent, you know, they can express that in negative ways or they can express it in positive ways in attempts to resolve the issue. And I think that if we decide that somehow the answer is outside, we're missing the mark. It is inside. But we should be embracing those communities, people with those difficulties, and we should be not only expressing our love and care, but we should also be helping people understand how to navigate the difficulties as you work through them. So it's, it's sort of baked into the to the discussion, so I agree with you. This is not, we, we should not pretend somehow that there is no, that it's just working out okay and we're all happy and it's gonna, you know, we just keep going, it'll be fine. We have work to do. <clears throat> to this I'd like to add, yes, I agree. Um, the dark age after Rome fell lasted 800 years and some of the things, some of the uh, sophistication things like cement, um, you know, the engineering, we didn't get back until the 20th century. The dark ages between each of these major transitions, the farther you go back in history, the longer the dark ages are. The further forward you come up the ages, the shorter they get. Now, I'm hoping with our current levels of cognitive sophistication, kinds of neuroscience that Cordell was talking about, I'm hoping we can go light and fast forward over this one because it could get a lot worse before it gets better. A lot of this is up to us, and this is one of my points. Evolution is no longer something just, that just happens to us. We are driving evolution. Now, the choices we make can determine whether our next, our, the, this dark age lasts um, 15 years or 50 years. I think it's likely to only last about 15 more, maybe less. But that's if we get our acts together, ladies and gentlemen. So this is definitely a call to action and a call to arms. Let's, let's make the dark age shorter and less harsh rather than longer and more harsh. This gentleman has been exhibiting extraordinary patience. I'd like for it to be rewarded. <laughs> I've been a UU since 1972, but this is my first time here. And let me just say that this is an amazing place. Uh, we have to be careful 
with the resources that we come upon, as you say. One example would be B.F. Skinner wrote some books. We probably most of us have read them, uh, Science and Human Behavior and uh, for the mainstream, uh, Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And he was talking about a technology of human behavior. Well, golly, folks, we got a technology of human behavior, and it's called Fox News. Mm. Right? Yes. So you can take that technology, and you could do some wonderful things with it, or you could do something else with it. And the two phrases that come to mind, if we can call them phrases, are uh, the Peter Principle, which we remember uh, people are promoted to their level of incompetence. I think we can see some of that in politics at the moment. And uh, I think it was Disraeli that gets the credit for this, but I'm not sure he really said it. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there are very few groups of people that can rise above that. And I think as you use, that's our ultimate challenge to do that. Thank you. John? Last question. Do I get a chance? You may. Oh, thank you for everything you've done today. But um, I wanted to ask you about your sense of urgency and the work we need to do. Could you share with us what it is you're doing? Because after this last presidential election we've had, I felt very despondent. It's like I feel like I have no clue what to do. I mean, how everything I did to try to prevent that, and all of us here tried to prevent that did not prevent it. So what is it that you're doing or what is it we could do? Or, you know, specifically, what are you doing? Are you asking Cordell or me or yeah, both of us? Don't worry about that thing. I, I, as you, as I've said, I'm, I'm a believer in application of mind and knowledge and information to the problems that we face. And so I envision that we become better. And one of the things I'm working on right now is actually um, what we lack in military terms is referred to as command and control. The ability for many to coordinate their activities in time. And then manage it. Um, as a technologist, I spend my time sort of designing what would a system look like that if you rolled it out and, and, and emailed all of the social agencies and churches access to this interface and said, okay, you guys collaborate. There's profiling tools in there that let you kind of find good matches like, like romance sites, but we're matching people on interests and capacities and goals and put that out there. What would happen? So I'm thinking in terms of putting enabling technologies out there so that people can then decide how to use their money, their time, their effort, and skills together, collaborate and come to consensus about particular goals, pursue them, have feedback on how things are progressing so that you can tweak as you go. So every business and government have similar tools to support their, their mission. What we need in our camp, so to speak, are the same kind of tools so that we can have our 
well-meaning people who are willing to do something see it come to something. And so there's a technical approach to that. The other thing I spend a lot of time studying is if I were going to help someone become that inner person, equanimity, compassion, unending patience and love so that they can be a force for a force like a Gandhi or a force like a Martin in their community, in their family, how do you simplify that development? And I think that there are enough examples of people with tools about, you know, making yourself better, more productive, etc. We have examples of tools like that, but we need to make some that are very focused on that that inner model. So we should conceive of the inner that model and then figure out how to facilitate that. And again, it's a technology-based one because my belief is that we don't have enough teachers perhaps to teach at the scale that we need. But if we can teach 60% of what could be taught through technology, we've still done something positive. And those individuals can then bring in family members and friends. So I have, I'm, I'm, to me, it's, it's two-pronged. It's their inside supports and outside supports, and I spend all my time kind of working on both of those. So though I haven't rolled out any tools, that's what I do with my time. And, and Amazon and Google have actually put out enormously powerful technologies in what they call the, um, it's not so much shareware, but open sourced platforms that allow you to create incredible tools. One of the things that interests me there is they put out tools that support artificial intelligence models so that you can build ways to research what's going on, find out what's going on in different regions, where's the money flowing, where are people thinking one way or the other, and get a good, clear picture of, of the lay of the land in terms of what we're concerned about. Then you can figure out where to put your effort and such. So I'm, as a tech, I'm saying what are the new emerging opportunities to have leverage on the problem that we did not have 10, 15, 20 years ago. Those problems persisted because we didn't have a way to break them down. Not so today. As Karen has pointed out, we're in a period where we are in a transition. We're now in the, we're now adapting to the new world. The new world is incredible information at your disposal, incredible ability to empower the individual and to teach or to at least to influence. But everyone has access to that. The crazies have access to that, as this gentleman pointed out. He says, well, you know, there's 10% who are on the other side of the field, and they don't think like you. And so we have to be active. But there are things there that, to me, encourage me that we can have impact at historical proportions that we've never had. And so, And so the point of doing this talk is, where do we begin? We have assets in the world. We have communities of well-meaning people. They're saying, what can we do? And some of us need to answer that question in concrete terms. Go to this website. Go to this link. Read that book. Talk to that person. And that's the, the nitty-gritty day-to-day details that we're getting, we're approaching right now. I hope. And then... So besides throwing in my lot with Cordell and Lonnie to help what they're doing here, um, to me the times call on us to find our passion. And I'm going to quote Frederick Buchner who said, 
the place to which God is calling you is the place where your deep joy meets the world's deep hunger. Well, the world is hungry and a lot of us are hungry. The challenge to each of us is find the place where our passion rises to plug into something we individually are passionate about. My passion is telling stories. I am writing fiction. I am writing a novel, and I am ambitious. I want a big five publisher. I want it to be a bestseller. It's set 11,000 years ago, but it's basically a vision of our future. I want to tell a story that will appeal to lots of people that gives us a positive vision, the positive vision I have for where we can go next, where we're going next with this, once we get through this period, however deep and dark and long it is, what's on the other side? Um, (laughs) I want to do, I'm very ambitious, what Star Trek did for me when I was 15. I remember duck and cover drills. I was in second grade for duck and cover drills. Duck and cover. I think most of you here probably remember them. The world, I was born into a world where we could go up in nuclear dust any moment. I grew up in Livermore. Our father was a nuclear physicist in Livermore. Most of our classmates' parents were digging um, you know, fallout shelters because we knew we were, we were one of the first targets, right? And then someone, this is just the world I'm born into, right? The Cold War. At age 15, Star Trek came on, and this was a vision of the future. It just took for granted that somehow, you know, 100 years from now, the world is going to be one federation all at peace. We had a black woman who was the voice of humanity reaching out into space. We had a Russian on the command deck. We had an Asian on the command deck. We have an alien on the command deck. Of course, this is taken for granted. We are exploring space together. The planet is at peace. We have a peaceful existence in harmony with the planet. Now let's move forward. And this is just, oh, wow, what a groovy story. Wow, let's see what happens next week and I don't think we give Star Trek enough credit for what it did for us to give us just a click oh yeah you know there's a possibility for a future that's going to be okay because it seems like all of our fiction is dystopian I want to tell a story that just says this is where we can be in 50 years and just say wow what a groovy story okay but just kind of get us out of that sense of desperation that is keeping us from finding our joyful passion and moving forward. That's what I hope to contribute to answer your question. And thank you for asking it.